Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And um, today we are excited to talk to you guys about the world of consulting. I think so many people who are considering a job on Wall Street are considering careers in investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, asset management, all these things, and consulting often in equal measure. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that neither of us have personal experience with. So today we're bringing on one of Kristen's friends to talk about this. And Kristen, why don't you Mm -hmm. do the intro? Yeah. So today we're bringing on Jane LaCurcy, who happens to be one of my best friends from college. She was a bridesmaid at my wedding, but she's a former McKinsey consultant and Harvard Business School alum. And so we wanted to bring her on because we want to just get into consulting 101. We want to know everything from what does the day in the life look like? What does exit opportunities look like? What does the normal project look like? And also we want to understand a little bit about business school, right? Um, mm-hmm. So many people also have probably thought about, do I go back to business school? Is it worth the price? What is it like for a career switcher? And so we're just going to be asking her pretty much every question that we can think of that we know you guys have. Let's bring her on. So Jane, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're doing now and walk us through your backgrounds? Yes. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. Yes. So like you said, Kristen and I were good friends in college. We went to Brown Mm -hmm. and studied biomedical engineering and we both did not want to leave and so stayed on to do a one-year master's. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know you did your master's as well, Jane. That's so cool. Yeah. We had that bonus year. Super seniors. What did you do yours in? Mine was in biomedical engineering, the same as my undergrad. Yeah, so that was fun, super seniors. And then mm-hmm. I actually went to a medical device company, and which is an amazing job right out of school mm-hmm. because you actually mm-hmm. get to be at the intersection of engineering, the manufacturing team, the clinicians that were actually using the product, and the sales team. I was there about three years, and I got to fly around working with surgeons to improve the device and work on clinical trials to show the efficacy and had a lot of fun. I I ended up applying to business school because I wanted to switch to where I felt like more of the issues were in healthcare, which is on the services side, mm-hmm. either health plans or hospitals. I remember just feeling about our device, which was a great medical device. It was a laser for tumor removal, mm-hmm. but it actually cost more than the hospital got reimbursed. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that's a broken system that that mm-hmm. can happen. So like, we can slice heart. out this cancer with this laser, but nobody can use it because the economics don't make sense. <laughs> right. Like so much in healthcare, it's, it's tough economics. So I went to Harvard for business school and there I was looking, I was trying to figure out, okay, how can I get a job at a health plan or a hospital and talk mm-hmm. to a lot of people that couldn't quite figure out the right place for me. And after doing engineering, business school was, was a bit of a change for me. Why? I, mean, I hadn't seen a balance sheet before. Uh-huh. I mean, just like kind of very basic basic things. So actually I went out for consulting interview when I was at Brown and I mean, bombed it so much that the interviewer and I were looking at the clock together, just like waiting. At the time. <laughs> I don't think I knew this story. <laughs> oh yeah. Hilarious. Wait, so how did you bad. bomb it? Tell us how you bombed it. What kind of questions did they ask in your consulting interview? Do you remember? Yeah. So I remember very clearly. <laughs> and you're like, it's and seared like- into my brain. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just imagine (laughs) we're studying humanology and we're doing this electrical bioengineering class and like connecting circuit boards. And then I'm just like, oh, maybe I should be a consultant. Sounds fun. I went to a presentation. I thought it sounded fun. Did not do any prep and showed up in this interview. And so it was my BCG interview. Uh They showed me a balance sheet and they were asking some Uh very basic questions about it. 
And I froze. I literally was like, I don't know how to read this. So then we watched the clock basically to uh, finish up. It was, <laughs> they couldn't was, have come up with another backup question, like a brain teaser or something like that, or asked you to talk through your resume. I mean, come on, guys. That's on BCG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. So that was a lesson for me there in prep and anyone listening to this in terms, if you want to go into consulting, that is a very big part of the process to actually prepare because it's a very unique kind of interview. It's not, it's not so much, tell me about your resume. It's much more simulating the real job itself. So, which I actually think, yes. Because that wasn't my experience in consulting interviews at all, actually. Really? I had, correct. I was never asked to walk through a balance sheet or any hard examples. It was because I didn't profess to have any expertise. So it was, see how your brain works, logic through this problem, all the old stuff, like how many McDonald's are in America, work through those kind of problems and see if it was a fit from an emotional, intellectual standpoint, not expecting me to know anything. Actually, that was my experience, I think, too. Although I forget my BCG interview. I don't think that went well. I also interviewed as an undergrad for some consulting roles as a junior. And I did actually get through, I think, to final rounds at McKinsey, but it was like in New Jersey. And then I didn't get the full-time offer there let's not, let's not hate on New Jersey here, Kristen. <laughs> Sorry. Although right. none of us are in New Jersey. So although my sister- No, but I still have a 609 area code. So. Oh yeah. You, you went to college in New Jersey. I always forget that. Okay. So we'll come back to the interview process in a bit. But so you yes. bungled your undergrad interview for consulting, but then you ended up thinking about consulting again when you were at HBS. So I basically was trying to figure out where could I go into health services from business school. I couldn't quite fight the right function. And again, the consultants were recruiting on campus and I said, okay, this is another shot to do it right. And actually did a lot of prep work. And I think actually, Jen, a lot of the interviews were more about market sizing and questions. You don't necessarily need the business background, but I do still feel that they're quite different from regular life and interviews. Well, and I also think that coming out of business school, your interviews were probably extremely rigorous relative to the kind of interview that you would get in undergrad as, say, a junior interviewing for an internship, because the expectation is that you've definitely seen a balance sheet before. Yeah, you'd think that, but actually the interview, we give the same interviews, um, same interviews really? are given pretty Ooh. much. Yeah, it's interesting. I can speak for McKinsey, but they recruit for PhDs, experienced hires. To be fair to BCG, I think the balance sheet could have been interpreted by someone who wasn't in a panic deer in the headlights. <laughs> you know, I'm freaking out about the fact that there's a handout in this interview. So I think the intent is that a person who is prepared for this kind of interview doesn't have to have a specific background. Um, so I interviewed and was successful this time around. I did my summer internship at McKinsey and ironic, they put me on a project related to fecal management, (laughs) trying to make sure you recruit your summer interns, but it was a great project. I had an awesome summer. Great people. Tell us more about the science of poop. Like I'm really curious about like the poop business. Actually though, like that was something that probably was so relevant. Well, actually it was so relevant with COVID. If you remember in the heat of the pandemic, everyone was looking at how much COVID was in people's poop to figure out like correct like coming through the sewer system. Yeah. So it's funny how like some of this stuff that you're like- Welcome to the Wall Street Skinny where we're talking about the economics of poop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I do want to come back to this at a a later time and hear more about your internship project. So you did your summer internship. You loved it. You got the full-time offer at the end and then joined McKinsey straight out of business school. That's right. And then I was there Did you go back to the fecal group? No, it's actually, we'll talk about this about consulting later, but I remember a funny moment where the client was asking what other fecal management companies were doing. And, and my boss was like, how many, how many of these do you, there, how many are there? Like how, how many do you think we're serving at a given time? But um, that is one of the values McKinsey brings is, is this relative, what are other folks doing in the you know, best practice sharing and, and yeah. kind of understanding market trends. But this is pretty niche, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. No, so I did not go back to that. So I went back full time and was there about three years. I actually went back to HBS to be a staffed ambassador for a three-month period. So that's like when we actually staff somebody to be on campus full time to help coach folks who are preparing for case interviews and also just talk to them, coffee chats. Yeah. So I got to kind of go full circle from being- Is that at 
all of the top business schools. They didn't have those at undergraduate institutions when I was there. Right. I don't know how many of the business business schools, but yes, I would think so. Because the numbers are pretty high in terms of coming from business school versus other graduate programs. No, but so this is interesting because I'd never heard of this before. So the big consulting firms staff someone at an HBS, probably like an NYU Stern, maybe a Wharton, a Stanford, that kind of stuff, just to be on campus coaching people how to then get a job at these firms. Yes, and to to recruit them. I've never heard of the banks doing this. You know, I'm not sure. This is part Um, of the recruiting I'm not sure. Right, I'm basically on the recruiting team during that period. You're staffed to the recruiting team. And during that time, I actually wrote a case interview to be given. Last I heard, it was still in circulation, but that was also a really fun project based on a real-life consulting case. And that's what I actually love about the consulting interview process is that it simulates the work. And I think any interview process Mm -hmm. that gets as close to simulating the work as possible, the better. And it's also great for the candidates because if you hate the case interview and you hate preparing for it and you hate doing it, you are not going to like the job. So I think the closer you can get to simulating reality in the interview, the better. You came full Uh, circle from bungling it in your interview (laughs) to now writing the interview itself. I love that. Exactly. Full circle. And the case study that you built for the interview, that's probably being used both at undergrad and at business schools right now. Right. That's so cool. Can you give us a hint of what the the case study is? I cannot. (laughs) It's like state secrets. So I want to go back to one thing. These days, people talk so much about the cost of higher education and Obviously, when you then add on business school, I mean, you know, I know, Jen, you talked last episode about how your husband graduated with $150,000 in student loans from Wharton. HBS is going to be the same, if not these days because of inflation, probably a little more. And coming from having undergrad student loans and also business school student loans, for someone who's not going to get a job at like a McKinsey or a Morgan Stanley or something that's high paying, the cost may not be worth it. Do you feel that the experience was worth the cost? I do. I was lucky to get some scholarships and Harvard University is really doing a lot to make education more affordable. And the business school is to a certain extent, based on what you were making before you entered, provided some pretty serious financial aid, like a healthcare scholarship, and then some was need-based based on my income before school. So that really helped quite a lot. What I feel about business school is I don't think everyone should just go to business school without really thinking about why am I going? What is the business case for business school a little bit, right? Um, Yeah. So for me, it was really great to transition from being a bit more technical into the business realm and finally getting into the consulting job Mm -hmm. that I had been really interested in before. When people ask me, should I go to business school and specifically to Harvard? What I feel about Harvard is, and they say this, we're not preparing you for your first job. We're preparing you for 10 years from now, 15 years from now. For your last job. Right. And this is not the case for other schools. Even I have friends at Sloan and it was much more practical. Like they were doing issue trees and they were building models and they're they're doing more practical work because Harvard is much more about the case method and being in this big room of 90 people and you're discussing different business situations in a big group. To me, it felt like a lot of pattern recognition, like it's giving you almost like more reps to improve your intuition and your judgment. So when different things come up, it's like, oh, that feels similar to this. And this was a big watch out in that situation. I also feel the method really helped with reading conversation patterns and getting in. So one of the biggest things I feel like I got from business school and and going to Harvard is I feel like I can get into any conversation because I can hear the lull. You know how to speak up. You have to be, you have to be concise because you're in this room. You know, your timing. Timing. Yes. What was your favorite case study or one that made a big impression on you that you did when you were at Harvard? There was one at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I think it was a operations case, which is ironic because I'm very far from being an ops kind of person, but I was really excited about hospitals. And so I just remember being really excited about contributing to a mission-driven place right. and bringing the mm-hmm. business skill to complement the medical side of things. That was probably one. And then the other one, well, I had one oh, sorry, professor. Were you, were you working on active cases? Like this is an active open case out there for Cincinnati Children's Hospital, or this is something that happened in the past and now we're studying it? The latter. Okay, got it. That's what I thought. Sorry, the way you said that made me think for some reason that it was happening in real time because you're like, I got to contribute. No, no, just the 
idea of being able to yeah. contribute, you know, which foreshadows my, my job after McKinsey Ooh. was for a hospital. It's a tough experience in some ways. I had never lived in New York. I think it had a very New York vibe. HBS, a lot of people come from finance, come from New uh -huh. York. And so that was new for me. But overall, it, it was a really great experience. So obviously, many of our listeners probably are considering consulting and banking, right? I feel like those are two that so many people, especially out of undergrad, maybe out of business school too. I mean, for you, obviously, it was very clear it was consulting and you never had any interest in banking. But I know Jen and I both interviewed for both. And especially nowadays, so many people are so like laser focused on private equity and the path there is either banking or consulting. And so I want to just get into some of the basics of what is consulting? Can you explain it how you would explain it to your grandmother? Because so many people hear consulting, but they don't really know what you're doing. We'd love to understand at a high level, what is it? Who are the big players in the space? We can kind of go through some questions as we go, but just big picture. What is consulting? Yeah. This reminds me of when I got the job and my dad was like, why would somebody pay you that much? What is your expertise? What are you consulting on? Yeah. So I would say at the highest level, consulting is serving clients who have a problem that they can't quite solve themselves. And that could be for mm -hmm. a lot of different reasons. It could be because they don't have access to data or information more broadly. They don't know what other people are doing in the field or other fields. What everyone like, else is doing in the poop industry. <laughs> for example, exactly. It could be because they don't have enough capacity on their team because everyone has their day jobs. And then this big project comes up and they need help about how are we going to get this done? We need some extra manpower. It could be like, I'm an executive and I really don't know the right path and I need help. Even how do I think about moving forward with the challenges that I'm facing? And I'm talking about strategy consulting. I think most of the time when people in banking versus consulting are thinking the big strategy consulting firms. And so that's McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group and Bain, or at least th that was the case when I was interviewing. Those were the Those big- still the big three. Three. Still the big three. Yes. Still the, still big, the three. big three. And I know McKinsey at least has evolved quite a bit, but- the core of the work is this idea of strategy consulting. In a typical, I'm trying to think of a typical project in this field, it's usually something has happened externally to the company, like the market dynamics are shifting, something's Change going on. regulations, something's right. happened. Exactly. Or there's a new opportunity, you know, or something has happened that would then require the need for consulting help. And it's not as though they then dial up the main number for the consulting firms. A lot of these big organizations have existing relationships with the senior level folks at the big consulting companies. And so these relationships are maintained over time so that when a need comes up, like they might just meet quarterly or check in every once in a while. And then when something comes up, they have contacts and they have relationships already with folks at these firms to then bring in an, a team. And so that's kind of the job of the the senior folks is like maintain these relationships, help advise on an ongoing basis, these senior leaders, and then help them scope what do you actually need? And then from the consulting firm, actually bring that in. So it's very similar to okay. the role of a senior banker in a coverage role, who's going to maintain an ongoing relationship with a company. And again, take the CEO out to dinner or whatever it might be every couple of months. And that way, when they do need to raise capital, when they do want to make a strategic acquisition, they're calling that banker. It sounds very similar, like maintaining a right. relationship, cultivating that relationship over time so that you call McKinsey when you need mm -hmm. to do your big strategic reorg or whatever it might be, rather than calling, insert other name here. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got what a senior consultant would do. Who do they need then supporting them on that team and what are their roles? Right. So like a typical project would have the senior person who it's like the godfather, you know, like they have have all these relationships and they've been at the they firm a really long time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then below them is like a regular partner. They changed oh, all the names, okay. but like senior director, director, partner, so associate partner. I'm just curious, like why, why did they change the name to try to make it feel like- Probably some consultant told them they needed yeah, to change it. <laughs> Probably. I'm doing a McKinsey project for McKinsey. They actually, that is um, a thing. There are internal projects actually, but there's different tiers of partners and all those tiers share in, if it's a privately owned firm, like in this ownership share. And then- um, When you say they share in ownership, yeah. do they buy into the firm? There's some extra compensation that's because so you're probably, a part of the partnership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they probably have some kind of ownership where they're paid out some percentage of the profits. It's interesting because if you think about like a law firm, law firms have to actually buy in when they make partner. Whereas like, I think that a lot of other, well, with 
you know, we were talking to Jen's friend, Camillo, who's started a venture capital firm. And he said that as people start to become very senior, then they have to contribute to the fund as well. But if you go to like a McKinsey, it's not like there's a fund where they're investing money. And so, yeah, so that, I'm so curious. Like, I mean, we it's just this. how you, you get paid in some ownership shares. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, right. Profit sharing. Right. Exactly. I think it's more profit it's sharing. I don't think there's a, I've never heard of the buy-in. Buy yes. Right. I didn't stay long enough. Though. I mean, that's, that's what it is. If you're getting paid in ownership shares that you cannot now monetize and you can monetize later, it's the same thing. It's just a different If you have mass. an equity percent. A little bit. Yeah. And do you know how junior you are when you would potentially start getting some of that ownership? Yeah. When I was there, the name was associate principal and you get like a half share and that is about four or five so years. Sorry, in. So let's actually just go back. So out of undergrad, you're probably, and I know they've changed the name since, but out of undergrad, you're, are you an analyst? If you're from undergrad, you're an analyst. If you're from business school, you're an associate. Okay. So that's consistent with the whole banking model. And then you said it's a, what was the next level up, the mid level? Then it's an so engagement manager. Principal? Oh, engagement so it goes, manager. Engagement manager's next. And then it's associate principal and then principal and then it. the tiers of, of principals. Right. And, and, and you said associate different... principal starts as early as five years in. So you move up. That's fast. That would be fast. That would be fast. Okay, got it. Different firms are structured differently. So McKinsey has many fewer analysts. It's more like, I don't know, a flared shirt than a total Christmas tree, you know? Um, Whereas like Bain has way more analysts. They don't hire as many folks right out of undergrad. McKinsey doesn't. No. You have a much better shot as an undergrad applying to get into Bain. And I think BCG is similar to McKinsey where there's fewer analysts. Bain has just much more of a like, we're going to have an army of people right out of undergrad and and McKinsey's Mm -hmm. not really structured like that. Like the idea is to keep a decent portion of folks to have them move up through the rank. Did you see when you were at McKinsey that if there was an analyst who started out of undergrad, were they typically expected to go back to business school for two years or could people get promoted up through the ranks without going back to business school? I think McKinsey actually prefers that they don't go. Um, It's changing over time. I mean, I guess it depends on the person, but they definitely would promote. So Dan Sai, who was the head of Medicaid in Massachusetts, and he's now working for CMS. He was an example of someone who went right from undergrad to partner and then has gone on to have a great career. But they do have, so someone either because they feel like they want to mature more or get this experience, like can go to business school. And McKinsey does have a program where they will pay if you come back to work for a certain amount of time. So I don't know what the official policy is in terms of do we prefer you to go to business school or not? But my sense was if you were really doing great. Why leave? Why leave? Yeah. I mean, it's like, essentially, if you go back to business school, not at McKinsey, by the way, but you would pay for business school, but you also wouldn't advance in your career. So it was like a double whammy. That obviously is not always the case because if you're able to go to business school and then leverage that to get a job that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise, that's a no brainer. But if you are on a track to get promoted, it's a very expensive thing to go back because it sort of hits you doubly with the opportunity. Yeah, cost. And, and back to the fact that McKinsey doesn't hire that many people right out of undergrad, the people they do hire are pretty exceptional. I mean, my, my experience with the analysts at the firm, I was just always impressed. When I tell people about business school, I often use the analogy of business school is like medical school and McKinsey is like residency. Like you're actually doing That's, the work. Yeah. And so if you've already done your residency, do you need to go back? Right. I love um, it. So we've talked about kind of the internal structure within these teams. What exactly is the business model of a consulting firm? So you're providing this advice. How do you get paid? Yes, the fees are quite significant. So I think- It's very expensive advice, but is there a, for example, in banking, fees are typically calculated in some way, shape, or form as a percentage of the size of a deal. But if the project that you're working on is, how do I make my company better at selling widgets? You know, there's no real sizing of the deal. So how does the fee right. structure work within these firms? Yeah, it's based on the time of the project and the composition of the team that's required. Mm-hmm. So everyone at those different levels has a different billing. It's kind of like, okay, the senior partner would have discussion. Actually, this usually happens at the level down, the person who's actually like figuring out the team and then figuring out how are we going to price this. But it's built on hours up. Like how many hours is going to take by which people? And then this is the fee. And as I was leaving, and I I bet have continued doing this, um, done some more like dollars at risk, like, hey, if we perform, then then there's going to be some. But at the base of it, it's a fee based on time and effort. Got it. So it sounds like it's very similar to a lawyer. 
Right. I want to talk a little bit about just a day in the life. How does staffing work? I feel like, and I could be wrong, but it feels like there potentially is a little bit of an element of luck in that if you show up day one, how are you staffed? You come in, you have this biomedical engineering background. Are you going to be mostly staffed on projects that are in the healthcare space and you are Boston-based? And so are you staffed mostly on projects that are in the Northeast, in New England? Could you ever get brought into a project that's on the West Coast? The, the consultants I used to work with, they would be traveling Monday to Thursday and would rack up lots of awesome miles and obviously lots of awesome credit card points. And then usually they'd be in their home office on Friday. But again, does this vary? How does this work? How long are typical projects? I want to know all the inside <laughs> dirt on just what is a day in the life of a consultant like? Yeah. So when you go and start, you're assigned a professional development manager who is playing this in-between role of the needs of the team and the desires of the staff who are going to get staffed. Like a staffer in the investment banking world, but maybe a little yes. bit more on your side as a junior person. <laughs> yeah. If you get good ones, like I had great, I had great professional development managers. And so they're definitely on your side, but they kind of, you meet with them and you talk about your experience and like, what are you really good at already? Where are you growing? What is your wish for your consulting experience? And then they do their best based on what projects are coming available and the timing. And this really depends on how is the economy doing? How is the firm overall doing? Like what's really needed? But for me, I had a healthcare background and I was interested in staying in healthcare. So it actually was good because we were aligned on that front. And then when different projects come up, again, depending on the environment, you sometimes have a choice as the person getting staffed. So the engagement manager for a given project, or maybe the associate partner would reach out and say, hey, want to tell you about this project. And again, depending on the environment, they actually might be trying to sell you a bit. They might be um, like pitching you on it. Like, hey, they might be pitching you, you work on the poop guys. Like they are the <laughs> So I'm really hanging no, up on exactly. the guys in case you guys can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> so in a good, like lots of demand situation, you're actually getting to have some say into which project you're going on on. So someone might come to you and you might say, oh my gosh, I really don't want to do that. And if the staffer looks and says, okay, there's going to be a bunch of projects coming up line, you, it's okay to say no. Sometimes they might say, I'm so, like, sorry, like you just got to... This is a job after all, you know, yeah, yeah. this is a job. So that's kind of how the staffing relationship works. In terms of your question about the geography or functional alignment, as you move up in tenure, you have to start specializing. You can either be specializing in a function, like we have a corporate finance practice or PE practice, you know, there's a healthcare services. You kind of like need to find a home long-term mm -hmm. group of people you're going to be working with regularly, a group of clients you're going to be working with regularly. But in your first few years, you really don't have to do that yet. And yeah. so they do try to geographically not be sending people to California, but it's just the timing issue. So especially for someone, say you just graduated undergrad and there's an analyst in California and there's one in Boston and there's a project in California, they're, they're really going to do their best to staff the analyst in California on the California project because Makes it's hard. What's the justification, right? But as people get more specialized and more tenured, then maybe it's like, well, you need this person because they're an expert in this field. And back to your pricing conversation, clients do pay for the cost of travel. So we do have an incentive yeah. not to, yeah. to do that. No, that totally makes sense. And so once you're staffed on a project, I'd love to know what the day-to-day -day looks like within the project for someone junior. Yeah. So you get staffed. You, you've already talked to probably the manager before it's decided that you're going to work. And then they send you an email and they say, all right, show up in you know Charleston Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Here's where we're staying, book a room and and then meet here. So you kind of get your marching orders and you know you have to get good at packing your suitcase and <laughs> knowing what you're going to bring. And I used, I used to get a lot of flack because I traveled with my own special ergonomic keyboard like this and oh, I, I love that. And a laptop stand and I actually at one point had a business pillow. I called it a business pillow, but it was a stuffed bear and oh. <laughs> One of my managers was like, Casey, lose the bear. And I was like, this is a business pillow, you know, like, um, 
But and for the record, anyway, that was you're Jane's not well name, rested. Yeah. You're not going to perform as a consultant, so it's in our best interest to keep your business pillow. I love yeah, that. that that and also one time someone told me get rid of my backpack, but I'm very passionate about ergonomics, so. I told them. You have the I'm medical gonna... device background. You've seen what happens. If you aren't, you're going to need a liver <laughs> on your spine or whatever it is. If you're not using exactly. Exactly. I, I, why does someone care? I mean, I had a backpack when I would walk around New York with my laptop. I was like, you know, my Barclays my... rate sales backpack just disintegrated on my last trip. I've been carrying it around <laughs> since 2009. Yeah. These days, I mean, Maybe don't have an L.L. Bean backpack, although that's fine. I had one from MZ Wallace. It was a black backpack. It looked very mm-hmm. sleek. But yeah, backpacks, so much better for your back and for your posture. I, I mean, it's important. Well, that's that's how- You know, while we're, yeah. while we're on this topic, you know, I do think as a consultant, there's more focus than other jobs in my experience on how are you dressed? What are you, Ooh, what's on your that. back? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think- Because we are coming in and representing the firm and the firm is getting paid a lot to bring in this team, basically everything has to feel buttoned up because- If you're telling someone we know better, you got to look like you know better. And what does that actually mean? Perception. It's so much what is right? There's a lot practically. of practically. So, what's the uniform? Yeah, the uniform is a blue suit <laughs> with a white shirt, and uh, I have a skirt, formal? blue skirt, skirt. Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. A lot of men don't wear ties necessarily, depending on the client. Okay. It is client specific, and it, it also mm-hmm. depends on is this a client where we've been there for a long time and the relationship's really good and they know us. If this is the first time we're serving a client, it is like everyone's in a blue or black suit, you know, with a handbag and you're just like put together. And will together. that be in like yeah. a staffing memo? And they'll be like, yo, it's one of the business formal clients. Or they'll be like, hey, we're going to consult with whatever, the Wall Street yes. skinny. And they wear black turtlenecks <laughs> right. and look like Elizabeth Holmes. So <laughs> dress accordingly. Yeah, you need brighter lipstick, you guys, to be Elizabeth Holmes. But yes, so they'll, they'll tell you ahead of time what the dress code mm-hmm. is. But I, at the time, I found it like a little bit like, oh, what's the big deal? But actually looking back on it, I do think it's important to try to look as professional and be as professional yeah. as possible, given the dynamics that you're in. Yeah, and you, know, you don't want actually, your bare pillow. Does that apply? I mean, again, do they want you to be presenting that image when you're walking through the airport, when you're out and about in Charleston while you're staffed on this project? Is it, I always talk about acts prejudicial. There was this clause at the high school that I went to in the handbook that said, hey, listen, even if you're not on school grounds, if you're out and about in the community and you're smoking a cigarette, you can be subject to disciplinary action within the school if you're caught, because you're always a reflection on the school, even when you're out and about in your day-to-day life. Was it the same at McKinsey? Yeah. I don't know if it was so explicit, but definitely airport and hotel. And there is this like expectation of professionalism. I mean, when we're meeting at 11 PM, I am not wearing a suit, you know, at 11 PM, you're meeting in the hotel lobby. I'm wearing pajamas, but There is that high expectation of professionalism in general. Well, let's talk about the hours. mm -hmm, So why mm -hmm. are you meeting at 11 p.m.? So the basics, right? So you show up. It is usually Monday through Thursday, at least pre-pandemic, where you were in person, on site with the team. Mm -hmm. And then Friday's in the home office. And usually the day would start at 8.30, maybe 9. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people are flying in that morning and getting in super early or getting on a train or bus. So there's a little bit of travel in the beginning of the week. And then it's usually like nine to five or six on the client site and then break for dinner. And then usually work, almost definitely work after dinner, either alone and ideally alone in your hotel room. But I was on one project. This was a relatively new manager and someone actually who had not gone to business school. And so was in the kind of tough position of having to manage people that are older than they were. Um, and I think it was a really big high profile project and didn't have time to meet with the team during the day. And so then we're having to meet at night to problem solve, which is for me, Kristen knows me, I turn into a pumpkin at midnight. So um, that was true. That was a quite challenging project, but I would say like expectation would be that you're on from seven to 11, seven to 10. I mean, people are sending emails expecting replies in the evening. That is kind of a normal expectation. Uh, And then that kind of repeats and the the days consist of, you're usually in a team room. So they've sold the project, the client has bought on, they know the team, you're flying out. They put you usually up in some room that they have extra space, ideally close to the clients you're going to be interacting with the most. So we call it a team room. You're there with your manager and other people on the team. So depending on how big the team is, it could be 10 people around a table in a room or back to my passion about ergonomics. Sometimes you're sharing a desk with somebody and you can't even put your legs underneath because you're on the drawers side of it. You know, like it's 
ergonomically not the best situation and everyone's on their laptop and there's lots of sounds going on around you. There's calls happening and you're, you're trying to do your work. And what your day is composed of is, so you're a junior person, you're given a work stream. The engagement manager has the broad directive of like, what are we trying to do here? And they, with some input from the partners, scope out, okay, how do we break this work down into pieces that can be done by these different folks on the team? And then you as a junior person get one of those work streams and that's what you are going to deliver on for, for over the course. Mm -hmm. Right. So like there might be, for example, like one work stream that's about interviewing customers for a client and synthesizing those insights into a qualitative report. And there might be another one that's building a financial model or a different kind of, we build mm -hmm. lots of different kinds of models at McKinsey. So it's really Excel based. And mm -hmm. so you spent time during the day, meeting with your manager. This is why you get so much professional development is because you are sitting next to somebody who's better at the work than you are and getting the input really often. Like, I mean, every couple of hours often. In that war room. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's everything is really interactive. I didn't realize this that about consulting or really think about that. Oh, I was it's gonna very... say, I mean, this is one of the things that with COVID, so many people who were starting their careers lost. They yeah. lost that, yeah. that the apprenticeship connection, model. the apprenticeship yeah, model, the, whether it was consulting, banking or anything teaching. else, it was like, yeah. you were not getting the benefit of constant dialogue and people obviously want to work from home. And I get that, but it does mean that there is so much knowledge transfer that then doesn't happen to people who are just starting out. And doesn't happen in an organic yes. way. If I send yeah. something in an email to you, that's feedback, it's going to be like, we always joke about the worst note you can get in banking being like, please fix. PLS. You know, PLS, fix, TX. Period. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Or not even a TX, just a period, <laughs> right? And that reads so differently than someone who's intimate with you in a shared workspace in this war room saying, hey, listen, no, 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 don't do it that way. Do it this way. And this is why. Right. Oh, absolutely. And actually, another great thing about McKinsey is that they actually have this thing called team learnings before you even start. So. Mm -hmm. You fly out, you're starting the room. And actually one of the first things the team tries to do is maybe it's at lunch that day or at dinner is like, let's actually talk about how we're going to work together. Are you a morning balls? person? No, no, no trust walls. But like, yeah, we actually had a team where it was like, we're all worried about our physical health. Like let's have wall sit breaks every hour. And we would put on a song and do a wall sit, you know? So those are the things okay, you kind of decide. Like, <laughs> but Kristen, if you, you know, like you talk about that, I quit. We should. That's like my husband and his team do stuff like that at work. They call it quads of gods. And I'm like, unsubscribe. Like, I don't want to be on this <laughs> team at all. So you've learned about kind of how you all work well together. It's nice to see that there's not this monoculture, that each team is going to adapt to the needs of the team, which is really nice. So you've got the combination of the teamwork that you do and then this solo working that you're doing in between your time on site with the client and then whatever you're doing in the evening by yourself that's a deliverable to the bigger team, something like that. Right. And because of this intense war room kind of model, it's not like a deliverable that you're going to deliver at the end of the week. It's like there's usually steps to that deliverable every half day. Mm -hmm. And the things that would push that are you have what we call problem solving sessions with the more senior folks like twice a week. And we are preparing materials to then have them be able to weigh in on and give feedback. And then there's also meetings with the client that are either informing the output or sharing the output with them mm -hmm. over time. So yeah, like when a team was working great, there's a lot of tailoring to individual styles. There was an analyst who was like, I can't think with all this noise, I'm going to go work in a coffee shop. And that was okay, you know, to let that happen. So yeah, so it's a pretty intense week. I mean, you're spending a lot of time with folks, like often eating lunch and dinner, maybe even breakfast with folks. Well, and also the travel element. I don't think people realize the toll that traveling takes on your body. When I was teaching, I would have to always travel to clients. So it wasn't exactly like the consulting model, but it really wears you down. I mean, it's a lot. And I'm curious, did you ever feel if it was a faraway project, you were like, oh, I don't want to go there. I mean, it's interesting. Some people come to McKinsey and they're like, I want to go adventure, you know? So people would go to Africa and London and Australia. Like, and people had some real travel journeys. I was very, like, you know me, Chris, I was like, yeah. I want to stay as local as humanly possible. So I actually yeah, yeah. I think the farthest I ever traveled was New Jersey. So I, I really did not have to go <laughs> that far. But in the wilds of Bergen County. <laughs> but it is still hard, though. I think to, to be away from home. I mean, I was in a residence in at the Marriott for six months. And I was like, I'm going to start putting photos up on the right. fridge here because to make it feel more like <laughs> home. And you have to plan your meals so that you're eating healthily, you know, and ideally there's right. a Whole Foods 
in the area, the client's area. So yeah, so it's, it's yeah. pretty intense. And then dumb question, when you're not staffed on a project, what are you doing? Not a dumb question. We call it on the beach, that you're on the beach. Oh um, uh, yeah. Okay. That's what happens when you lose your job in, in banking and you don't find another one. You're on the beach versus being on garden leave, which is when you're on your paid non-compete. Interesting. Garden leave. That sounds very nice. Um, garden leave. Yeah. You're gardening. <laughs> Yeah. So they call it on the beach. I think for junior folks, especially when they just started, we're known for like- You're probably never insecure. on the beach as an analyst. Well, no, it, de- it really depends on the market. I think oh. people right now are, for example, and I think it's quite stressful. It's like the opposite of being on the beach. I think it's quite stressful to have just started and maybe done one project or two projects and then be on the beach for a while. Well, you probably feel like you have to prove yourself. If you're not working, there's a chance that you're not going to then have a job. Right. I think it's quite stressful. I think when the economy's good and you're more confident, you've been there a while and you're like, I have good ratings, I'm okay, then it can be quite fun. And, and I actually think I wish for folks that you would actually be able to enjoy that time because it is really intense when you're on. So like, ideally, mm-hmm. you can enjoy yourself a bit when you're off. There often are internal projects that you could get staffed to or just little mm-hmm. projects around to fill the time. Like maybe it's some recruiting or maybe it's some internal so studies. there are ways to yeah. sow seeds and show that you're adding value when you're on the beach. And maybe that's something to be thoughtful around that, hey, listen, you can turn this potential negative, scary time into a time to sow seeds for future personal development within the firm. Right. And if you're on the beach too long, just don't be too picky on the project when they <laughs> do the come project. up, you know? That brings me to another question because you're talking about getting high ratings. So what do you think it takes to be a successful consultant? academic skills, knowledge, personality traits, characteristics, what makes someone high ranking and ultimately successful? Well, it's hard to say what goes first, like really liking it or being great at it. But in my experience, like people who are really great, really love the work. And I, I was not really great as a consultant. I was, I did, I did well, but I did love the intellectual stimulation and knowing that you're working on things that are important to the client and that, that it's having ideally a good impact on, on the world. I think the people who really make it as partners, like it's a really good fit for them. They get bored easily. They really like intellectual stimulation. They like a challenge. They don't mind not being the one executing. They don't mind being an advisor. They actually like that. I think what's interesting early on, the hard skills are more important, like being able to build a model that doesn't have any mistakes in it being able to do PowerPoint slides really tightly. And then as you get more up, the interpersonal, relational stuff becomes even more and more important. Ideally, you have a balance of both. You can get through the beginning time and then use the relational skills, but clear thinkers, being able to break down problems, good communicators. Communication is a huge part of the job, being able to tell the story of what's happening, what needs to be done or what should be considered. I think the EQ is really important because a lot of this is about influence. How do you influence within the organization or your board of directors or your colleagues or your customers? Like there's always some element of influence. And so the partners and the more senior folks role is really thinking through how do we influence here? How does that work? Who could blow this up? Who could really support this? And like actually really being thoughtful about influence. I think there's a really good balance of that people and org thinking side of things with the, okay, I can look at a data analysis and really get the, so what, you know? That's so similar to banking. We've talked about where it's like at the very junior level, you're building the models. You need to be an Excel ninja. And then as you get more senior, you start to become more and more a relationship person, maintaining the relationships with the CEOs of these huge corporations and having them want to call you when they need to, in the banking space, buy a company or raise debt or raise equity or in, in your case, when they need to do a project and figure out what's the best way to optimize XYZ thing, they call McKinsey and not BCG or Bain or whoever else. Yeah, Sounds I feel so like similar. we've talked about this ad nauseum that regardless of the career path, among any of the different types of jobs we've discussed on this podcast, all jobs at their most senior level become about sales, become about <laughs> relationships, become about right. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what's managed at the most senior level. You did touch on ratings within the team. I'm curious to understand how much transparency is there on that? Are you given like a number on your rating or you're like, you got an eight or whatever it is at the end of a project? How much of that quantitative Mm -hmm. feedback is given to you along with your ongoing qualitative feedback that we (laughs) talked about earlier? Yeah, a lot of qualitative feedback. So you're a junior folk on the team. You don't (laughs) know necessarily your rating by project. 
You mm. get the regular feedback and there's more formal feedback on the projects. You're getting a lot of feedback from your engagement manager, either informally day to day, but then also like scheduled feedback. And there's a whole rubric of the dimensions on which at your level that you're getting feedback on, which is a lot of basic skills of analytics and storytelling and page making and relationship building. But it's not a number. It's not a formal rating. It's more like this is going well. This could be improved. And then there's a someone called a development group leader, a DGL, who is not somebody you're typically working with necessarily. It's just like a partner who is responsible for collecting all the feedback from all the teams you've worked on and synthesizing a report and coming up with a rating. And this rating, I believe, is actually not set until all the partners are in a, like of the office actually get together and, and actually agree on what the ratings are. And that is more yeah. like a five-point scale. So distinctive is the highest rating, very strong, strong. And then I don't know if there's needs a- improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Needs improvement. Needs improvement. No, well, actually, and then the last one is like, there's what we call that is called council to leave. Beach. Council <laughs> to leave. I love that. Well, I don't know if that's a rating so much as a, you could get counsel to leave. (laughs) You might get counsel to leave. you're not performing. So do those ratings, the five, four, three, and then it sounds like goodbye. Does that also then I assume transfer to the compensation to your your bonus? And is there usually then five tiers or is it four tiers because one person just gets shown the door? I do know that for the least of the strong, very strong, distinctive, it influences the bonus and how quickly you're going to ascend to the next level. So it's directly tied to advancement as well. In the council to leave situation, so I, you know, I knew at least one person in that situation, like that person is not having fun. So you, in my, it's probably not a big surprise. It's not like I was loving this. This was going great. Suddenly counseled to leave. Right. It's usually like, this is, it's not a good fit, you know, and the firm is very, I would say good to people, like very generous in terms of time to look for another job that's paid. But yes, that is a real possibility if it's really just not jiving. And, And usually like you've gotten the chance to be on multiple teams. So it's not like you have one bad project and then you're out. It's okay. You have a bad project. You have another bad project. You have another bad, you know, it's kind of, we've tried different angles and consistent data points. Exactly. And in your experience, Jane, you kind of talked about some of the skills on the job that set you up for success. Stepping back a little bit for people who are thinking about this as a potential career path, what kind of resume, what kind of academic qualifications do you think set people up for success? Or is there any rhyme or reason? Because you've talked about coming to this from an engineering standpoint, but thinking about the idea that at the end of the day, all of those EQ type things that you talked about, influence communication, those skills may be developed from other kind of more humanities-based backgrounds. Was there any Mm -hmm. rhyme or reason during your recruiting that you saw to what kind of resume made someone successful other than just having HBS at the top of it? Well, I know that technical degrees actually were preferred from a point of view of like, Mm. this shows problem solving capabilities. And again, because the junior level roles, there is a lot of model building and analytics. That is actually something that was preferred was the more like an Mm -hmm. engineering degree was looked favorably upon. With engineering, I used to always say to people, it's like engineering teaches you how to solve problems. That's what I, I got out of my degree. It sort of brings this very structured way of thinking through problems, which I feel like is probably so similar, right? Thinking about breaking down problems, structuring them and trying to figure out solutions. It feels like that's a very transferable skill. Mm -hmm. I agree. Just imagine like this, the quintessential McKinsey problem solving and the partner, you know, you're at the whiteboard and you're trying to like really think through how are we going to approach this? It's really like intellectually fun. It's like a puzzle, you know? The other thing they really look for would be leadership, of some form or other? And does this person take initiative and lead? Are they just on the team? Are they captain of the team? Are they the president of the group? Do they have drive to make a difference? And then good grades is is kind of a baseline as well. Prereq. Yeah. Prereq. And then we've talked about coming into the industry, coming out of the industry. You mentioned earlier on that there were all these different micro specialties that evolve within a potential career at McKinsey. Can we talk a little bit about the exit opportunities where you saw people who decided not to pursue a lifelong career in consulting, where they wanted to go? And you know, Kristen kicked off our episode by talking about private equity as a potential exit opportunity coming from consulting. Within the consulting world, 
obviously consulting for one of those companies if that's where you ultimately want to see yourself. I imagine that's potentially a path. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I definitely have friends who went into private equity from consulting and not necessarily like that they were in the private equity practice, but they got the skill set that then uh-huh. translated. It also depends on when you leave. I think the most common time to leave is after having been an engagement manager. And that's where you're really managing up and managing a team. And so when people leave at that time, get a lot of into the, the banking private equity world, a lot go into strategy, corporate strategy offices at companies. And, and, and that's, that's like, you did. basically, yeah, that's what I did. Exactly. So there are people at who aren't doing strategy consulting, they might be doing more operational stuff, but you are building some set of hard skill that makes you functionally able to do a role. So I think the strategy or business development was a common one into a company. How many people did you see go on to start their own companies after they'd learned all of the potential pitfalls of what other companies run into? Yeah, they have this statistic somewhere, but McKinsey in particular has a lot of folks who ultimately become CEOs and entrepreneurs, especially the partner level folks that I saw leave. I've seen go and start really cool companies. But the reason to go to consulting, I think, is just getting the skills in communication, in analytics, in structuring problems and influence. Mm -hmm. Those set of skills, I can't think of a job that's not useful for. So, and I think it is important to stay more than a year at least like two years, ideally longer to get those skills. Let's talk about burnout a little bit. Is that something that you can speak to? Because it's something that we see a lot in the banking world, for sure, with these very long hours. I mean, a schedule like that of Monday to Friday, working 8.30 until midnight, that can take a toll on someone, especially when you're not in your city, you're not surrounded by your support network, you're isolated with this little team. What was your experience like with that? And and what do you see as some of the common pitfalls for people? Yeah. I mean, so the reason I left, despite all of my glowing about professional development and the intellectual stimulation, and my experience was very positive, I found it very challenging to work those hours with that level of intensity. I remember a situation where Mm -hmm. I didn't write back within an hour at 10 p.m. and, And then the person had said, Jane, can you send something? And then wrote back and was like, well, I guess she's not sending something. And I'm like, I cannot believe that's the expectation. You know, it's just really high expectations. Mm-hmm. And so oh, yeah. you're like, I, um, I'm literally asleep in bed. I'm sorry that like, I, I'm <laughs> or just... I'm working on it. And I did. Or I was working on it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I am. Um, though you sleep. I was planning on staying a little longer than I did because I really did not have much experience in the engagement manager, managing teams. You know, I'd only done for a project or two at that level, which is funny because actually that's more of my strength areas than the hard skills, but was on a project where we were there five days a week. It was the first time serving a client after having not served them for many years. So it was a big, like prove yourself. The model was so complicated that we ended up, we built it, but then the analytics team over in Europe actually had to run it because it was so complicated. It was a really just kind of a a perfect storm. And then my boss ended up getting sick because she didn't take care of herself early enough and was off the project. So it was me, me right to a senior partner, which happens in consulting. There's the best case where you're like, I love everyone. I'm scoped appropriately. The client's nice. And then it's local. And then there's these tougher projects. Battlefield promotion in a total war zone. Like it was tough. Right. So what happened to me is I wasn't sleeping because I was so stressed. And then I really do not do well without sleeping. I need a lot of sleep, which is, I remember actually talking whenever we'd have fireside chats with the senior partners and hear about their schedules. I'm like, shoot, I'm never going to make it because these people don't sleep. So Mm -hmm. I did one more project after that, actually, but I decided to leave after I had effectively decided this is not working. I actually tried to do a nine to five where I was a manager in a project only working nine to five, but that had its own set of challenges because I remember a situation, I left the team working on something next morning in a client meeting, I'm having to present something that I hadn't seen because- nothing about, yeah. And and I appreciate them even trying that because they really try to retain women. I bet every consulting company has Mm -hmm. a problem with women, but they really tried, but I found it. Basically they wanted to keep you and they were doing what they could to keep you. And then eventually you were just like, sorry, this isn't going to (laughs) work. I feel what's great about consulting is I think some jobs you go and if you say I'm going to quit, they're upset. Consulting, there's kind of an understanding that a good portion of people, you contribute during the years, you get a ton of professional development, they get good work out of you, and then you part ways as friends. So Mm -hmm. I think 
that's how it felt. Like it, it never felt like, oh, you're doing something wrong by leaving, but they were like, how do we make this work better for you? And I think people who are there, like they, they joke about everyone's an insecure overachiever, but like, I think if for me, if I could get rid of the insecurity, I definitely could have stayed longer because then I could sleep, you know, then it's like, well, I'm in a battlefield promotion and I can only do the best I can. But I think taking on the burden of the whole project and like proving and all that, it leads to burnout, you know, and once you're in the cycle of not sleeping and then you're not doing that well, then you're starting to feel bad about not doing well, right? It's a bad cycle to be in. I would say, I don't, I don't know if it was exactly burnout. I definitely experienced burnout, real clinical burnout later in my career. My, my real burnout was six years later, I had been chief of staff to the COO and led the strategy team at this amazing organization, Boston Medical Center, where the mission is just amazing. And I felt like when I left McKinsey, I was like, I don't want to lose the problem solving, the mm -hmm. intellectual stimulation, the breadth of problems. And BMC was like amazing for that because we had a health plan, a hospital. We were entering accountable care. Actually, my a partner, um, Dan Sai, I worked with at McKinsey, became the head of Medicaid. And he really like transformed how Medicaid is, which is the state healthcare for folks who are low income, how it works in the state. And we're one of the most advanced programs. So I was there six years and really got to use my McKinsey skills and develop the organizational influencing skills even more. But yeah, I really burned out at the end of that period of time. And burnout is a scary thing. It's very insidious, I feel. It's like you start to doubt your own value, which makes you work harder, which then makes you burned out more. And when I think about how I viewed myself at the end of that of like, wow, you're not doing enough. You're not doing a good job. You're letting down the patients at Boston Medical Center because you're not working hard enough. And then I, I look at it now and I look at that person and I say, man, you were doing a lot. Like mm -hmm. you were taking on so much. Let it down your burden, you know? Yeah. I always come back to, have you guys ever seen that old movie, Forgetting Sarah Marshall? It's mm -hmm. like a romantic comedy from oh, yeah. 15 years ago. With the Helen, but your mother guy, I forget his name, yeah. but yes. Jason Siegel, yeah. yeah. Yes. And Paul yes. Rudd plays a surf instructor. And he's trying to teach Jason Siegel how to surf. And he's like, okay, now pop up on the board. And he does, and he jumps up. He's like, no, 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 get back down. He's like, do less, right? And do less and do less. And finally, Jason Siegel just lies down on the board. He's like, oh, no, no, you got to do more than that. But like, do less. <laughs> and it's funny because we've always talked about that actual secret magic trick of do less to avoid burnout. It's not that you should be performing at a lower level, but if you trust your innate talents and you trust your skills, how do you stop becoming your own worst enemy? And I think that happens mm. to so many of us because you're in this industry because you're probably talented, a perfectionist, you have tons of t attention to detail, you really, really care, right? And that's what makes you good. But sometimes what makes you good can be your undoing because you apply that same critical lens that you apply to all these problems ultimately to yourself and say, am I not doing enough? What should I be doing more of, right? And you get in that cycle. I am lucky enough to not suffer from being such a perfectionist and I sleep great at night. <laughs> but well, that's I also, also do think why I like totally pull the ripcord on banking after seven well, years. I, like, I got to do less. I also do think women also sometimes get to a place where they're just like, fuck it all. I don't need this. And this is a broad overgeneralization. I feel like women can oftentimes care more. And it's because they care more, they work really hard. I mean, you see this at the junior levels with women graduating at insane rates from college, women going into the workforce doing so well. And of course they have kids and then like they're, the, the, the wage gap starts to show up. We won't get into that. But I do think that women really care. I think it's a, their work is a self-reflection of themselves. And then it, it almost sometimes gets to this place where it's almost not sustainable. And you're like, you know what? Why do I care so much about this? I also care about, I want a family. I want kids. I want a life. I want to be happy. Priorities change. When you get into your thirties and forties, you get to a place where you're like, I rock. I'm going to do my job and I'm going <laughs> to kill it. But I also just don't freaking care anymore, <laughs> which almost like makes you better. I mean, I know for- No, like, it does. That's the whole thing. That's what I mean about- The less you care. Better. Yeah. yeah. Not, not that you don't care about the quality it's of the not, work, yeah. but you don't, you, you don't base care as much your about entire sense of self-worth around yeah. you don't live and die with every decision that you make hmm. you're gonna you know what i'm saying you're still gonna work hard you're still gonna try your best you're yeah. still gonna seek the highest possible outcome but not view it as a reflection of your self-worth as a human yes. on a whole that there's yeah. more to you about whether or not you got an a plus on this project I think there's also, I have found I care less about what other people think I care mm. a lot more about what i'm yes. doing and myself 
And I yeah. stopped giving a F-U-C-K about other people. I'm like, you know what? You don't like it? I don't care. I know I'm awesome. Thanks like- for spelling that out, Kristen, so that <laughs> all the toddlers <laughs> listening to the Wall Street skinny won't accidentally hear profanity. <laughs> we do have an explicit rating on here, by the way. We do. <laughs> no, but absolutely, though. Absolutely. I got trained as an executive coach after my burnout. The best thing that came out of that was working with a coach regularly. And yeah. I have come to say, I am putting down people-pleasing, proving, mm-hmm. and perfectionism. I'm done. I like that. I really (laughs) like that. The three P's. The three P's. The three P's are fear driven. And Mm -hmm. I do feel like what you're saying, Kristen, about that some of this is societal expectations that are just not reasonable on what Mm -hmm. a good woman is supposed to be doing. So I had a great run at BMC, took six months off after my burnout. And I remember someone's like, oh, great. You, you spend like all your time with your kids. And I was like, absolutely not. I love my kids, but I love coming back to them when mm-hmm. I see them. So I got trained as an executive coach. And now I do some coaching, but it's actually more about influence within an organization and storytelling and PowerPoint. So skills that started at McKinsey and continued at BMC. And I do some trainings like PowerPoint. How do you structure it? What's the process? How do you influence? I need you know? that. Um, Jane, you need okay, to teach well. us because that's the one skill I, well, not one skill. There's lots of skills I don't have, but that is a huge skill that I would love to have that I do not have. Okay, so I would Jane, love to if, do that. If our, if our listeners want to find you, is LinkedIn the best way? Probably. I'm, I I haven't figured out. So that's part of what I do. And I've, I'm not only doing it so far with Boston Medical Center, my old employer. So far, it's been kind of corporate, like bring me into your organization and I'll I'll do it. But yes, so I haven't thought through about individuals. The other part, I Jane, actually- we're going to have a conversation. We're going to have yeah. a conversation. Okay. Listeners, stay about tuned this. about how <laughs> to one day ultimately access the PowerPoint Ninja course that Jane's going to be running. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And then my other, I I work for the city of Cambridge, leading the strategy there. I'm half time. I went to see a talk by Jessica Gross from the New York Times about modern motherhood in America being unsustainable. And the solution she had was let's like not have healthcare be tied to work because so many women Mm -hmm. would want to be working part time. And I completely Mm -hmm. agree with that. I feel that being part time, doing a job that's mission driven, intellectually stimulating, you know, I still have a team, but I have time to take care of my health and be there for my kids when they need me. I I just think that's an amazing answer. Jane, this has been so informative and inspiring. And I think we really appreciate your uh, just raw honesty with us about so many of these things. We definitely want to have you back on here at a later date, but this was just absolutely fantastic. And thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 